0: Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News, Russia-Ukraine war podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine with your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts.
1: Hello, my name is David O'Belt. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Today is March 3rd, 2023. It is Friday, it has been 372 days since russia expanded its wide-scale invasion of ukraine linnea has a well-deserved day off
0: you know uh, the war uh, which uh, we are trying to stop and which was launched against us using the ukraine, <laughs> U- ukrainian people
1: that was Sergei Lavrov speaking at the G20 summit in New Delhi, India. He was answering a question about Russia's future energy policies and his statement that Russia was attacked and that they are in a position of defending themselves. We'll give Lavrov credit for not mentioning nukes or Nazis in responding to the question. On the subject of Russia's energy future, it's looking pretty bleak. The numbers are out. Natural gas shipments are down 47%. Oil shipments are down 38%. The price of natural gas around the world has collapsed from where it was at a year ago, certainly much lower than where it was in August of 2022. A couple of factors have made that happen. First of all, Europe had a near- historically warm winter is one of the top three or top five warmest winters in history. Depends what country you're in. Europe was able to secure multiple alternatives for Russian natural gas, and United States was able to export a lot more liquefied natural gas than, quite frankly, I thought they were capable of. Did we just do a cold open like the cool kids? Yeah, that just happened. Let's talk about the situation in Bakhmut because that is where everybody is focusing their attention right now. On February 3rd, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the head of private military company Wagner Group, made a statement responding to a speech that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made, declaring that Ukraine would never give up Bakhmut. Prigozhin's response to this was Please, don't give up Bakhmut. Please, I beg of you, fight to the last man because if you don't do that, people will see you as weak. They will get rid of you of a leader and I want you to fight to the last person. Now, Prigozhin's intent was not, of course, altruistic here. This was a mocking response. Let's fast forward to March 3rd. Hey, you're you're almost surrounded. Can, can you please just leave? Because it would just make it easier for us. If you just left, you should leave, please. Realistically, the situation for Ukraine is not good in Bakhmut. We've assessed since the end of September that Russia will do everything it can to capture Bakhmut. You have PMC Wagner with a financial incentive, you have the political incentive from the Kremlin, and then you have the politics within the Russian Ministry of Defense. Valery Gorisimov was put in charge of the operation on January 11th, and he would bring to the table the first Russian success since the capture of Severodonets and Lashantsk, that was all the way back on July 3rd, 2022. And after the capture of Lachance, Russia was not able to turn that operational success into a tactical or strategic victory because they had become combat destroyed as an army in the effort to capture Severodonets and Lychansk. In our assessment of Severodonets, there are three potential trigger points where Ukraine is going to have to make a decision on whether to stay or whether to go. The first trigger point is at the Bakhmutkova River, The river divides Bakhmut roughly by one-third to the east, two-thirds to the west. On the east bank is the industrial districts as well as residential neighborhoods and a few micro-districts. Because the weather has gotten warmer and because we've had some rain and snow melt, the river level is going to be higher. So this is not going to be an easy obstacle to broach, particularly with the change in tactics that PMC Wagner and the Russian military are using. The taxes they're using today do not favor doing a river crossing, and we know Russia's track records on the ability to cross rivers. But we are not talking a waterway that is the width of, say, the Siversky-Donetsk River that we saw between Severodonetsk and Luchansk, which also had unfavorable banks. This is a much easier area to broach and if and when Russian forces broach that, that's when you get into this real nasty urban fighting like we saw in Mariupol, although in this scenario, Bakhmut isn't surrounded the way that Mariupol was, and even if the garrison within Bakhmut were to become surrounded, it would be much easier for the Ukrainian armed forces to support that garrison through airstrikes, artillery strikes, heimar strikes, and looking for opportunities to provide some degree of resupply. In the northeastern part of Bakhmut, Russian forces have reached all the way to the river. That's not the case in the east or the southeastern part, but Ukraine is definitely getting to a point that in our assessment, this is a trigger point they're going to have to make a decision. The second trigger point is at Yevska. This is a suburb of Bakhmut that is located on the southwest corner of the city. Ukraine has done a very effective job of defending the settlement and also to the south, defending along the entire length of the Sorversky Donetsk Donbass Canal. This area is very stable. And Russian forces appear to be content to have fire control over the T-504 highway, a critical ground line of communication. That's G-lock supply line for Ukraine. That trigger point is okay. This brings us to the third one, which is Kromove. The T-506 highway is the last paved ground line of communication that's supporting Ukraine and Bakhmut. It runs from Chaosev Yar through Kodomove into the city itself. Russian forces yesterday shelled a bridge. That bridge had detonation charges set up on it in case Ukraine had to retreat so that Russia couldn't use it. The artillery strikes set off those charges and that destroyed the bridge. That is not the last road in and out of Bakhmut. There are numerous dirt roads that can be used, but that's the problem. They're dirt. We're moving into mud season, into the rainy season. They're going To be very hard to continue to use. So, we've covered that there are three critical points where Ukraine is going to have to make a decision on whether to stay or go. None of those have been reached. You have two of the three that are, quite frankly, in a critical state. Ukraine is reaching a point it is going to have to start making some decisions. What practical reason does Ukraine have to stay? They are fighting a belligerent that will do everything short of seaburn, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, to. Take Bakhmut, isn't it just time to go? In our assessment, we believe there are two things that are going on. First, by forcing PMC Wagner and the Russian troops to continue to grind this out in Bakhmut, Ukraine is fighting a war of nutrition with the benefit of the defenders' bonus. The defender's bonus is if you are attacking a place that is well defended, you're going to need to have a ratio of three to seven attackers for each of the defenders to assure that you'll be able to capture that location. Attackers by default suffer heavier casualties when they attack well defended positions and Bakhmut has excellent defensive structures that have been set up going Back to the Cold War era, this was a military city. Ukrainian forces have kept most of Russia's available combat potential bottled up at Bakhmut for seven months now. And this has enabled Ukraine to largely create a frozen front across the rest of the theater of war. The second reason that Ukrainian forces have not withdrawn up to this point, maintaining a siege on Bakhmut, is going to be far more difficult than maintaining a siege at Mariupol or at Severodonetsk. Mariupol was surrounded in depth. Ukraine had no viable way to provide artillery support, air support, or meaningful amounts of resupply. In the case of Severodonetsk, Ukrainian forces had a strong fallback point in Lyshansk. The mistake that Ukraine made, it's one of the biggest mistakes that they made in 2022, they didn't rotate out their troops. They just kept the same frontline units fighting in Severodonetsk had them fall back to Leschonsk, and the troops were exhausted, and Ukraine started having military units refusing to fight, and that's the point that they decided to withdraw. Now, Ukraine learned from that mistake where we're seeing this constant rotation of units in and out. They spend seven, ten days up on a front line, then they rotate back, they bring in another unit, and this is far more effective for the physical and mental well-being of those units, and it allows replacement troops to get a little time to integrate with their new unit for those who have been on the front lines to give them an education on don't do this don't do that you have to unlearn this here's this trick that you need to know versus you just get a group of replacements sent up to the trench you're already in the fight for your life and You've got no way to counsel them, train them, mentor them. The problem that Russia is going to face if they have to surround Bakhmut is they're going to have to protect the northern and the southern flanks. They're going to have to hold the eastern position, and they're going to have to be able to hold the door closed on the west side, where they're going to be wedged between Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut and Ukrainian troops in Chasiv Yar, which is also very heavily defended with defenses in depth. And Prigozhin said earlier this week that he is concerned that they could end up in this Azovstal scenario, where there is a group of Ukrainian troops who are motivated, relatively well-equipped, fighting in an urban environment, in a Cold War-era city with multiple bunkers to hide in and move through, and the benefit of Ukrainian fire support. The other thing that they want to avoid when you get into urban warfare, Ukraine did this in Severodonetsk. They will hug the Russian forces. This is a technique that was developed by the Soviets in World War II. Hugging is when you get as close as possible to your enemy in urban fighting. This takes away the ability for your enemy to use artillery and airstrikes because the risk becomes very high that they'll hit their own troops. And it makes for really nasty urban fighting. In our final assessment, Ukraine will eventually have to withdraw from Bakhmut. Russia will just continue to throw combat Potential at that city until it is captured. The Ukrainian general staff will withdraw from Bakhmut at the exact moment when they are satisfied that a sufficient amount of Russian combat power has been destroyed, because ultimately, this is preparing for a Ukrainian offensive later in the spring somewhere else.
0: You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News.
1: In the Watts, there's something that's happened in Kramina, which is very interesting. The Russian Ministry of Defense last week made a decision. They withdrew some of their forces that had been placed there as part of the offensive operations that have been going on for about seven weeks. Russia has made some gains in forests and fields and capturing some strategically important trenches to use their language, but there have been no settlements that they have recaptured. The units that they withdrew are being sent to Vulodar, and that's very interesting. The units that they moved in to replace them are these poorly trained, poorly equipped Mobics. Since January 24, Russia has suffered losses that in a modern military would not get generals promoted, they would get generals relieved of duty. They've lost over 100 armored vehicles. The 155th and 140th naval infantry are combat destroyed and having to be reconstituted. This is why they move some of those units out of Kermina. They want to keep that offensive going. Vuladar is important, and Vuladar, we've talked about this before, at least makes sense. Bakhmut doesn't make sense. Insurgents in Mariupol are reporting that they are seeing a reduction in the number of Russian troops that are moving through the city. The Russian troops that had been dispersed in the villages around Mariupol, a lot of those forces were sent to Volodar, and those forces are now combat destroyed. Those villages are empty. What does this tell us? There are really just two possibilities. Number one, Russia's combat losses have been so high that Grissomov's battle plan is starting to fall apart. They're having to make decisions on where are they going to move the remaining combat power to keep offensive operations going in the areas they see that are most critical. Number two, Russia is sitting on a large reserve force and they are planning another offensive somewhere else in Ukraine over the next few weeks. Never underestimate your enemy. We don't see any signs that Russia is setting conditions for a second offensive somewhere else outside of Bakhmut if we base our assessment on the information that we have available to us. It appears that Russia is starting to have staffing problems. We have a very hard time believing that the battle plans set up for Vulodar involved losing one hundred and thirty plus armored vehicles and would take months to complete. The troops that are being dedicated to continue that Vulodar offensive were supposed to be used somewhere else. Additionally, in the last forty eight hours, there have been fresh videos of Russian units that have come into Ukraine. They have been separated from the Russian Ministry of Defense, and they have been signed either to the first First Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic or the Second Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic. And in both cases, neither of those units that are appealing for Russian President Putin to do something were not trained for infantry. So what we're seeing is these fresh MOBIC units that have gotten more training. They've gotten eight, some of them are even saying 12 weeks of training in artillery or tanks are being told there's no artillery pieces. We have no artillery pieces left. There's no tanks. We have no tanks to give you. You're infantry now. By changing their legal status from soldiers of the Russian Ministry of Defense to, you can't see me doing the air quotes, volunteers of the LNR or DNR armies, Russia doesn't have to count their casualty numbers. Russia doesn't have to provide them veteran benefits. Russia does not have to provide them disability and medical care beyond stabilization. They don't have to pay death benefits to their families. Wait, wait, wait. What about Ukraine? Aren't Ukrainian soldiers dying in all of this? Don't they have some of these same issues? Ukraine is suffering terrible losses in places like Bakhmut. If we look at a place like Vulodar, the Ukrainian losses are nowhere near what the Russian losses are. And if we look at places like Bilohorivka and Luhansk or around Kramina, it's a similar story there. In our final assessment, it appears to us that Russian losses across the theater of war are reaching a point that the Kremlin is having to make decisions that they didn't want to make back in January. Their timetable is falling behind, and time is no longer on the side of the Russian Ministry of Defense. Our last segment today is about Igor Strelkov Gurkin, our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, failed mobic Kremlin pariah extraordinaire. Gurkin was pretty emo earlier in the week, but he is back to his salty, snarky self again. There is legislation that is moving through the Russian state Duma that would further strengthen the so-called don't say war laws, which will make it harder and expand the penalties for not only criticizing the military, but extending this out to organizations like PMC Wagner. But it's okay, because Gherkin's got his followers back on his social media channels, and he has come up with a list of euphemisms that they could use so that they won't run afoul of the new law. And I'm just going to read them off, because this is an absolutely epic list. Number one, victorious de-escalation of the Kiev, Chernihiv, and Sumi regions. Number two, an amazing successful regrouping from the Kharkiv region. Number three, a heroic difficult decision. Number four, alternative success at Vuladar. Number five, the rapid assault on Bakhmut. Number six, this is the best one in my opinion. Year round uninterrupted progress in Marinka. Number seven. Dazzling successes near Evdivka. Number eight, promoting reasonable savings of ammunition. Number nine, historically unrepeatable ahead of schedule. Number 10, wise rejection of established red lines. Number 11, the irremovability of military officials is a guarantee of the continuous repetition of all of our successes. Number 12, growing demonstration of Russian air defense capabilities in new territories. Epic. Number 12. A stone axe is an example of well forgotten military innovation technologies of a bright Russian future. Number 13. Shoigu, the non plywood marshal. Number 14. The best patriot is frightened. Number 16. Turbo patriotism is our main enemy. Number 17, Moscow was on fire. Stalingrad was on fire. We can repeat this at number 18. Everything is so good that tomorrow will be even better. I'm going to close things out today to give you an update on some internal things that are going on within Malcontent News. Uh, The first thing is because of your generosity, and Linnea may be hearing this for the first time when she reviews the podcast, uh, I have to send Linnea a document today. It's called a uh, W-9 because we're going to be able to issue Linnea a check this month, and that is because of you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's the second thing I want to talk about. We have a goal. We want to get to 2,000 patrons. We're at about 1,030 right now. Whoa, 2,000. That's a lot. There are three reasons. There are less than 1,000 creators who access Patreon that have 2,000 or more supporters. It's a big milestone. Number two, we're still cash flow negative. I really wish that it was as easy as just walking into a studio and sitting in a chair for 20 minutes and recording this podcast and walking out the door. It's not. This takes hours hours to create. And the third reason is we can do more. The more revenue we have coming in, the more we can do as a news organization, and there's a lot more that we want to do. For the cost of a latte, you can support us for an entire month on Patreon, and we have different tiers that are available. Full stop. If you're listening to this right now and your finances are in a state where it's $5 to the charity of your choice or $5 to Malcontent News, please support the charity of your choice. Please. If you're an existing patron, thank you for your support. This is not an appeal for you to increase your contribution on Patreon. But if you're listening to this right now and you're like, I enjoy this podcast. I enjoy the information I get. I deeply appreciate the quality of the research, the commitment to providing the truth, the accountability when they make mistakes, please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can help us expand our efforts and pay other people, not just Linnea, and eventually reach a point where we can pay Linnea what she's worth being paid. And I always like to end these shows with, there's so much terrible in the world, so please be good to each other.
0: You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand?